What's your biggest problem? Don't answer out loud. Someone may try to solve that problem. What is your biggest problem? If I were to sit alone with you and to say, okay, let's talk. Just bare your soul. What's your biggest problem? What would you say? Well, some of you would say school. And those of you in school, some of you would say PE. That's not, if that's your biggest problem, there's, there's prayer room available at the end of the service. We can talk to you. Some of you would say calculus. I can understand that. Does anyone in here like math? Why would you admit that in front of your friends? <laughs> Just take your pocket protector off right now, put your nerd glasses on, and identify yourself. Why would you even admit that? <laughs> I really like calculus, you know, the formulas that fill the whole page. It's just fun. <laughs> I mean, calculus is... You can't figure it out, and they give you the answers at the end of the book to mock you. I don't understand that. You're doing the work and work and work, and at the end you say... I'm pretty sure they got it wrong because this looks awfully right to me. (laughs) I almost quit school over calculus. That was just wrong. Some of you, that's your biggest problem. I understand that. Um, For others of you, it's something that's going on at work, you know, or the lack of a job or you're trying to find a job. It's work-related. For others of you, it's a conflict. It'd be foolish to think in a room this size that someone doesn't have an ongoing conflict that you're in the middle of right now. Could be with your mom, could be with your dad, could be with a sibling, could be with a friend, could be with a boyfriend or girlfriend. And for some of you, for some of you girls, your biggest problem is guys. For some of you guys, your biggest problem is guys because that's, that's all of our biggest problems ourselves, and us girls. It's the, the whole relationship thing, and you're trying to, trying to figure things out, and, and you know, what, what does love mean? Some people will sing to you, what's love got to do with it? What does love mean? What is, what is this all about? And how many of you are in, uh, let's say, uh, 11th grade or, 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 or lower? 11th grade or 10th or, okay. Yeah, my, my question is why? Well, I mean, I got a boyfriend. I'm in ninth grade, I got a boyfriend. It's really good. We're, we're going steady, was that different than going rocky? Uh, or I love this, we're going together. Go, going where? Look, my, uh, this is terrible. When I was in the sixth grade, my friend told me to, 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 to ask this girl to go with me as I was terrified, absolutely horrified. I, her name was Kelly. And I asked her to go with me in the sixth grade. I didn't even know what that meant. So she said, will you go with me? I said, yeah. I said, Great. And I didn't know what to do then. I guess I was going somewhere with her. I never talked to her after that conversation again, by the way. And I'm pretty sure we broke up. I, I mean, I got married, I have children. I, think, I don't think we're going steady anymore, but that, I had no idea what that meant. What's your biggest problem? I want to ask you to consider something that's a little odd tonight. I think and I agree with The theologians from the Reformation on, actually it goes back to the church fathers and on, who have articulated man's biggest problem. Now, before you answer, you need to consider it. What is man's biggest problem? It's consistent with all of us. You could say, well, sin. Well, sure, that's part of it. Well, salvation, that's a challenge. Man's biggest problem, are you ready? Is God. And just ponder that for a minute. The biggest problem man has is God. The challenge is this. What do you do with a God 
who's too far away to get to. Can anyone get in a rocket ship? If you had a rocket ship, the calculus people will know how to build one. But if you had a rocket ship, can anyone get in a rocket and go see God? Can, he's too far to get to. That's a problem, isn't it? How, how do you deal with a God who's way too far above us? Read the scriptures, way beyond us. How do you get to God? What do you do with a God who's too far to get to? But let me ask you another question. What do you do with that same God who's too close to outrun? How do you get away from him? How do you get to him? How do you get away from him? What, what do you do with faith and a relationship with God that seems so distant and out of reach from our knowledge and so close that it almost seems to haunt us, his presence does. Well, before you start ushering me out the door, I want you to consider the testimony of scripture. Right at the first here, just listen to these. You might wanna write them down. We're just gonna take a flying fast tour. Listen to these passages. Psalm 10, verse one. Why do you stand far off, O God? This is a writer of scripture. Why do you stand afar off, O God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You ever felt like that? Life is not like you want it to be and you go to God and you feel like he's playing hide and seek and he's somewhere you can't reach him. Psalm 13, one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I can't find you. I can't get to you. We often think of this reference in Psalm 22, verse one, of Jesus quoting it on the cross. But remember when David said this the first time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. David says in these passages, where are you? I need you, I can't find you. You're too far away, I can't, I can't explore it. I can't get to you. You're, you're beyond me, I can't get to you, God. That same author, that same David also wrote this, Psalm 139, verse seven. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Huh, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol where I die, behold, you're there too. If I take my wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there in the middle of the ocean, even there, your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? So what do you do with the God who's so close you cannot escape his notice, but so distant that you can't get to him? Now, do you understand why theologians say that man's chief problem is God? One Dutch theologian said this, he who says, I believe in God, says more than he can justify, more than he knows, more than he senses or suspects. He says that God's reality is more than his own real life, that God is nearer than hands and feet, more, the most sublime, also the most common, that he is God in heaven above and on earth below, the furthest away and the closest at hand, the unattainable one who is already nearby us before we were born. I don't know if you've thought of it in those terms, but have you really considered the fact that God is too far away to get to, too close to outrun? So what do you do with that? What I want us to do is take 
three theological perspectives and solve this because this will launch us on what we're trying to do this this weekend to get to the top to move forward to advance if you're going to advance I love that video by the way the guys who put that video together wow I watched it about 10 times when, when John first sent it to me because I was like, okay, what they did, I know what they did. They found some stock footage of this dude running up this mountain and then they made a guy dressed like him and then just kind of filming around town. And then I found out, actually, no, they, they filmed him running up the mountain from a guy hanging out of a plane. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. That's exactly, it was awesome. I mean, I, 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 I thought that was a trailer. I wanted to see the movie, man. Let me go. Let's go. Let's look, if you want to take notes, if you, have an, uh, you want an outline, let's look at three ways to understand man's core problem with God. Three ways to understand man's problem, man's core problem with God. Three ways to understand that. The first is, now guys, we're going we're gonna to go in the deep end of the theology pool and swim a little bit, okay? The first is this, number one. Understand the distance of divine transcendence. Let me spell that for you, okay? T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D-E-N-C-E. I get all my A's and E's and S's and C's messed up in those words, so transcendence. Understand the distance of divine transcendence. You say, what in the world is that? God is spirit, John 4, 24. He does not have spatial dimensions, he, he, think about this. He's present at every point in space and yet space can't contain him. When we speak of God's distance from us though, it's the, it's the gulf, not in reference of kilometers or miles, it's the reference in quality of being. He is fundamentally different than us. The theologians say he's holy, W-H-O-L, holy, entirely different than us. Transcendence is the word that tries to capture the degree of God's majesty, the extent of his holiness, how far he is above us and the quality of his being. To say that God is transcendent is to say truly that he is the king of kings, to say that he truly is the Lord of lords. Psalm 113 verse five, who's like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the earth and the things that are in heaven and on the earth? Who's like God? Who is like God? It often borrows from the metaphor of height. The Lord is in heaven above, Deuteronomy 4, 39. He's established his glory above the heavens, Psalm 8, 1. He's enthroned on high, Psalm 113, verse 5. And God calls his people to highly exalt him. We could go on and on. Psalm 97, 9. You are the Lord most high over all the earth, far above other gods. Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above the earth. Ecclesiastes 5.2, I love this. God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Thank you, Solomon. <laughs> well, one of the funniest parts of the Bible is uh, to me in Isaiah 66, 
Isaiah's building this entire case for, for the, 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 the re, re, returning kingdom of God toward the end of the age. And he's building this idea and saying, God look, looks for those who've been circumcised in their heart, who have a, a spirit of worship inside, not just external formalities in worship. And it climaxes in Isaiah 66. And he says, thus says the Lord. He's talking about the temple. They're so proud of the temple the Jews were. Look at it. It's got the gold. It's got pillars. It's got courts. It's got different divisions. It's got all this lavish uh, decorations. Look at what we've done for God. He's got to be proud. God says, Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth, yon, that's mine, is my footstool. The world, just, I just kick my feet up on the world. Where then is a house you could build for me? He goes on, where's the place that I I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, these things came into being. Imagine, just for a minute, let's take a time travel trip together. You and I go back in time and we are going to go over and have lunch with Rembrandt. Good painter, right? We're going in and as we're going to lunch, he's sitting with his family in the dining room and we walk in and we suddenly realize I didn't bring a housewarming gift. I don't think they had Yankee candles then, but we would have brought one. I didn't bring anything to say thank you. And so as they around the corner, they go into the kitchen to sit down. You're looking around and you look on the wall and there's a painting that Rembrandt did. And you go, bing, I got it. You take the painting off the wall, you walk around the corner and you say, Remy, thank you for having me over. I just wanna give this to you as a a way to say thank you for, for having me over. He's gonna say, um, McFly, I mean, I, I painted that. And the Jews were saying, look at this temple we built, so pretty. And God's saying, yeah, those, that gold, those were rocks I made in a, in a cave. <laughs> I made this. You're gonna be, I'm gonna be impressed with this. Then he says, but to this one I will look, not the one who can build temples, but the one who is humble, contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. God's distance is way above us. We can do nothing to impress him and nothing to get to him. God, this is a little shocking, okay? You ready for a little theological shockwave? God has never looked down at you or me, elbowed the angels and said, what a guy, what a girl. Have you seen this one? Remarkable. The first way to understand man's core problem with God is to understand how far above us he is. The second way is right behind it. And that's to understand number two, the nearness of divine, here's another big theological word, the nearness of God's eminence. Let me spell it for you. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, eminence. Eminence means how close he is to us, how present he is. It's different, the opposite of transcendence. Eminence describes how close he is to a person. It accents his his involvement in our lives and human affairs in this world. Interestingly, a lot of the texts that talk about his eminence, how close he is to us, do so in reference to his, his transcendence. Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and take it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There's no other, he's both. Deuteronomy 4, uh, 10, 14. Behold, the Lord your God is in heaven. Uh, the, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, earth and all that's in it. 
We could go on and on, but that's all Old Testament. New Testament, Ephesians 4, 4. There's one body, one spirit, just as you also were called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Listen, and one God, the Father over all and through all and in all. Way out there and right here at the same time. So, how do we approach a God who is both too far and too near simultaneously? Now, to answer this, we need to turn to the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. Turn to Job chapter 1. I know it's not the first book in the Bible, but it, it's the, the first book that was written, and it records a time during the time of the patriarchs of this gentleman named Job. Most people know uh, the, the, the story of Job generally, right? It's not a pretty story. Um, Satan has a conversation with God. Very interesting. Remember that Satan is just an angel. We need to correct our view of Satanology so often. Is sometimes we think of Satan as the bad God. God is the good God. Satan is not the bad God. Satan's a creature. Satan is not the captain of hell. He will be the chief captive of hell. God runs hell. Satan doesn't run hell. Satan is a being. This being has to report to God regularly. So it shows up to God. God says, where have you been? He's just rolling around on the earth. And then God says to Satan, hey, you checked out Job? Actually, I have. And I think the only reason he praises you and, and walks with you is because you're good to him. He's got great kids. He's got a lot of, lot of wealth. He's got a, 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 a wife. He's got uh, land. He's, he's top shelf. You've blessed him so much. Of course, if I considered him, he would look like, like one of your prize creatures who adores you. And then Satan says, but wonder what would happen if those things were taken away. And God says, have Adam. Just don't kill him. Now, I'm not trying to pick on anybody if you're here visiting with us and you're from a charismatic church, but I've often wondered if the charismatic movement were alive and well during that day and Satan had come to afflict Job and one of these, our friends in the faith, had come up and said to Job and to that situation, Satan, I bind you and cast you out and Satan would have materialized. Satan would have said, what are you talking about? God sent me to do this. Satan is not equal to God. Look at chapter one though. Um, Verse 13. Four messengers run toward Job. Job is just having a time in his house. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, they were having a family reunion. All the kids were together. This was a good family. The kids got together on purpose. It seemed to like it. They're all having a party over Job's oldest son's house. When that's happening, something happens. Now it flips back to where Job is at Job's house. Now I just want you to use your sanctified imagination for a second. Job's house is somewhere where Job's living. At some point, well, at the point where this party's happening at at the son's house, the oldest son's house, these events transpire and four men run out of breath 
from four different places in Job's world. And they must have seen each other coming and, tr- and tr- running toward Job's house. How do we know that they saw each other coming? They're all bringing really bad news. Watch what happens in verse 14. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing. The donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. This was a source of wealth. This was a source of commerce. Not only that, these were Job's workers. These were servants that he had no doubt paid and cared for and loved. They were dead. They were killed. Now look at verse 16. While he was still speaking, he hasn't even finished telling the story and this other guy busts through the door. And then it also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. He can't finish telling that bad news. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another, a third comes in and says, the Chaldeans formed three hands. Bands and, the ra- and they put a raid on the camels, took them, slew them, the servants also with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. Job has seen these three people. They run in the house. They must have gotten to the door about the same time. One starts saying, I've got to tell Job some bad news. Before he can even finish saying it, this other guy says, yeah, but not only that, this happened. And before he can finish saying this, third guy says, not only that, this happened. Bam, bam, bam. Verse 18, and while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters, that must have stopped his heart. Four men competing to tell the worst news. Your cattle, your livestock, your livelihood, your servants, your friends. Now he hears your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness. This is interesting. And struck the four corners of the house. You know what that means? Wind comes from one direction. For, for wind to strike the four corners of the house had to be a tornadic event. This was a tornado that dropped right on this house and destroyed it. And the house fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. It gets worse in chapter two. His physical health fails so that he's got boils, sores that are swelling up with yellow pus. And he takes a piece of pottery, a sharp piece of pottery like a knife and just scrapes himself to pop those boils to give himself some relief before they fill back up. He and his wife have a conversation. She says, forget it, curse God and die. And by the way, before you're too hard on Job's wife, remember what this woman has lost? I don't think her theology was good. Job confronts her on that. 
But I can certainly understand her frustration. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Job afterward opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Wow, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Now, I told you all that to tell you this. That's not the story of Job. That's not the theology of Job. Most people think Job is about suffering. It has some things to do with that. But the first two chapters are about suffering. There are 40 more chapters. 40 more chapters. And you know what these chapters deal with? They wrestle with Job and his friends dealing with this reality. God is too far to get to and too close to outrun. That's what they're wrestling with. How can we figure this out? What made this happen, Job? Well, they, they go back and forth, Job and his friends, and it climaxes, at least in the first part, in verse chapter eight, where his friend Bildad, chapter eight, verse one, Bildad the Shuhite, the shortest man in the Bible, da-dun-tsh. Um, he basically uses chapter eight to say this. Job, here's the theology, okay? Do good, God blesses. Do bad, God curses. Therefore, we've got to figure your life out to see what you've done bad. You had to have done something bad for this to happen. You had to do something to be wrong with God. You've provoked God in some way to stick your fingers in his eyes so that he's now done this to you and to your family. And so, and by the way, if you, if you underline verses in the Bible, if you highlight or star or asterisk verses in the Bible, I want you to get your pen ready, get your pen ready. Because this is the most important question in the entire word of God that Job asks. Job answers in chapter nine, verse one. In truth, I know this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? There's the question. You wanna know what your biggest problem is? The answer to that question. How you answer that question. How can a man be in the right before God? Now, I wanna take some time to take you on a little tour of chapter nine. Let's just read along. I want you to see Job's thinking. If one, he talks about it, God's immense power and creation. He says, if one wished to dispute with God, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has defied him, God, without harm? Is it God who removes the mountains and they know not how? He overthrows them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of his place. Well, now we got earthquakes. He's talking about its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine, sets a seal upon the stars day and night, the rotation of the earth, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, looking up the constellations. He makes the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, the chambers of the south, looking up at the stars in the heaven, who does great things, unfathomable things, and wondrous works without number. What a God. Have you just looked at creation, he says? But, verse 11, were God to pass by me, wouldn't see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. He is invisible. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Now he goes to God's undisputed sovereignty in judging the world. God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. Just talking about how sneaky things seem. You can't have any control over them. 
How can I answer him and choose my words before him? For, for though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called he and he answered me, I could not believe that, it was his, that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause. He will allow me, not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. Have you ever had a season in your life that was like that? Just out of breath spiritually. Just can't get my bearings, my equilibrium. If it's a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, ha, who can summon him? That means who can bring him to court? Though I am a righteous, my mouth will condemn me. There's the God that's too close to outrun. I may be right. I may not have done what, what Bildad and Eliphaz have said I've done. But if I talked, it wouldn't take long. Like Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I would sin with my lips. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I may not be able to identify what I've done in this situation to solicit this suffering, but I promise you, if I talk long enough about my life, it will be very easy to identify things for which I should be judged. I'm guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. I can't figure out what I've done. It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. He's just saying it doesn't make sense. The good guys don't always win. And sometimes the bad ones do. Covers the face of his judges. If it's not he, then who is it? He affirms God's still in charge. Now, verse 25. The days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. I'm dying. I am physically dying. He didn't know that God said you can't take his life to Satan. Job is looking at his disease and thinking, I mean, they didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have doctors. He's thinking, this is it. I'm going to be dead soon. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle swoops down on his prey. Though I say I forget my complaint, I will leave my sad countenance and be cheerful. I'm afraid of all my pains. I know that you, now he talks to God, you will not acquit me, find me guiltless. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? What's the point? If I should wash myself with snow, cleanse myself with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. So, let's review. Job said, I look around the creation. You are too strong for me to deal with. You're God, I'm not. I've looked at my own conscience. I am guilty for things that I know that I have done wrong, but I don't know which one I've done that's made this happen. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to deal with you, God. All of that climaxes in this statement in verse 32. For God, he, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. Let me tell you about this court. This was in the ancient Near East. This wasn't a court like like Judge Duty. Judge Judy. (laughs) Wasn't a gavel. Wasn't a white, you know, um, uh, wig like they have in in, in England. This was a, it was an L-shaped bench right outside the gate. And the elders would sit on this L-shaped bench. And you've seen like in Proverbs 31, uh, the, uh, a, a husband who has a good wife will praise her in the gates. It's right there. That's where all the, the business of the, um, the city was, was done. I've been to Israel. I've seen outside the gates. You can see these, these benches that were set up for these elders to sit in. If you had matters that needed to be resolved, you brought them to them. Job is saying, 
something's wrong with me and God. He's condemned me. He's so close. I can't get away from my conscience, which I know he sees and violates my, which is violated by my, my conscience is violated by my own sin. And he sees that. And he says, but I can't find him. Where's God? Oh, he is not a man who could come and lay his hand on us both, meaning represent me to God as a man and God to me as a man. And he ultimately answers it in this. This is another underlining verse in your Bible. There is no mediator. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Job was in despair. He's saying, God, you're transcendent. I can't get to you. I can't talk to you. You're imminent. You're so close. You know everything. I'm condemned. I am undone. I wish there was someone. I wish there was some way I could talk to you through someone who would represent me rightly to you and represent you rightly to me. I wish there was a go-between, an umpire. I wish there was a mediator. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul has left his disciple Timothy at Ephesus to take over for him as the pastor. He writes him a couple of letters to make sure that the church is functioning in good stead and in order, which includes some procedural things, some character things, and some theological things. He calls men to prayer in chapter 2. talks about God who desires the salvation of men and then in verse five says this and I'm gonna give you a little Greek lesson here, okay? For there is one God and one umpire, one mediator between God and men. Now most translations say this, the Lord, or the man, Jesus Christ. The man, Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. In Greek, there's a way to put the word the in front of a word. And there's a way to leave the the out and it makes it an a. It's either a man or the man. The New American Standard puts the word the in there. But if if you look at it, it's in italics. That word isn't there. This is, let, me, let me translate this. This is a man, not the man. Here's what the text literally says. There's one God and one mediator also between God and men. A man, a human. A human, a man that Job wanted. A man, Christ Jesus. That third way to understand Man's core problem with God is this, the mystery of divine incarnation. The mystery of divine incarnation. 
Job wanted someone who could represent him to the Father and the Father to him. He longed for the day that there would be an umpire. He said, there is no man who can understand God's holiness and represent that to me, understand my sinful plight and represent that to God. I am undone. And Paul says, actually, there is a mediator, an umpire between God and man, and it's Christ Jesus. Think about it. He alone, being man, can represent us to God. Read Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. He became a man so he could die. He became a man so he could in all ways be tempted like us, yet remain without sin. He became a man so he could be our example and a man so he could show ultimate dependence on God and what that looks like in human flesh. It's almost like this. It's almost like for for 400 years, uh, well, for multiple years before um, the New Testament, you got all the law given. It's almost like man saying, you know, do this, don't do that. Thou shalt thou, thou shalt not do this. And it's almost like man's going, I can't, I can't, I try, I can't, I can't, I can't. And by the end of the Old Testament, during that Maccabean era, during those 400 silent years, it's almost as if you can hear man screaming, this is impossible. If, Lord, if this is, if this is what you want, if you think this is easy to do, why don't you come and show us how to do it yourself? which is exactly what Jesus did. He came and fulfilled the law. Tempted in every way we were, experienced every temptation categorically, every struggle that we we would encounter in our heart that faces sin and yet he remained perfect. He can represent our plight to God. But being God in nature and in essence, he can represent God to us. And he did. That's why we have the gospel record. It's remarkable, though, that the, when that courtroom scene happened, and it did, on the cross, when we most needed our case pled to God, and when God most needed to mete out justice to us, both parties Abandon him. In a metaphorical and a physical sense, all the disciples ran. Oh, sure, John was there with his Jesus' mother, and Peter, tradition tells us, watched from afar. But what's remarkable to me is God the Father. Where was he? My God, my God, why have you, what's the word? Forsaken me. The night before in the garden, as Jesus is sweating great drops of blood in the intensity of that prayer, I I believe for the first time in the history of the Trinity, Jesus prayed to the Father in silence. No answer. I think it must have been a shock. And he prayed again, the same thing. Lord, please take this cup from me. And he listens. God the Father doesn't answer. And he prays it a third time. And then instead of the answer, what happens? God sends an angel to comfort Jesus. But he doesn't come. The Father doesn't come himself. I believe the rejection started there and lasted till he was nailed at nine o'clock the next morning and at three o'clock in the afternoon when he dies and he looks and says, God, my father, why have you forsaken me? Both parties 
abandon him at the court so that he could represent both to each other. You know the best news about the cross is? It's not the cross. After he died, three days later, he rose from the dead. I I did an interesting um, exercise last year um, before Easter. I read the book of Acts in, in one sitting, just to get a flow for it, and and looked at the emphasis on the cross and the death of Christ and the emphasis on the resurrection. The emphasis on the resurrection is overwhelmingly accented more than the cross. Even Paul, at the end of his life, Paul's you know, standing before Agrippa. You know what his crime was, what, what he was on trial for? Believing in Jesus' resurrection. I mean, think about it. I know a man who's alive... Who was dead? Imagine you never heard that before. That abandonment on the cross was when he took the justice for us from the wrath of God and took his righteousness and made it available to be imputed for us. It's just remarkable. I was explaining this to my my son and he just said, that's not fair, dad. It's not fair to Jesus. That Jesus gives us his righteousness. By the way, how can you go to heaven? You know how you go to heaven? You're perfect. It's the only way to go to heaven. So if you could be perfect from now till you die, you still wouldn't make it because you got what you've done so far in your life. You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. Who can do that? Since you can't have any perfection yourself, I love what the Puritans called it. You need an alien righteousness, something outside of you. Not like from Mars, Somebody outside you. Jesus took his perfection and said, that can be yours. That can be your account. That's your ticket. But what about our sin? What about our wrath? On the cross, he took the full furious wrath of God in our place. That big term substitution. He's a substitute atonement. God covered our sins. Substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's remarkable. Christmas time, we sing a song. So cool. Think about it in these terms. We sing songs about Emmanuel, right? You know what Emmanuel means? God is with us. Jesus is the God with us. Jesus is the man Job longed for. Jesus is the mediator, the umpire. If we could in some strange way, and God would allow it, if we could summon any angel from heaven right now tonight, any angel, and let him stand right here, that angel would talk to you about Jesus. If we could invite any person who's died and gone to heaven to step away from those joys and to come and address you, those people would talk to you about Jesus. If we could reach into the lowest part of hell and pull a tortured soul and have that person stand on this stage, that person would talk to you about Jesus. If we were to call God the Father and he were to materialize on his throne right here, he would say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He would speak of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit were to materialize John 14 and John 16 say his purpose is to point to Jesus. 
However, if we could call the devil or any of his demons onto this stage tonight, they would want you to listen to and want to tell you about anything and everything except Jesus. You want to advance? You can't advance by just trying harder after we have our snacks and coffee and everything tonight. Now you advance. You embrace the umpire. You believe in the mediator. And by faith, you say, I cannot believe this incredible gift that you would give me your righteousness and take my sin and die my death for that. The first step in advancing is Jesus. If Job were to come back from heaven right now, he would say, I wanted a mediator and you have him. What a God. Would you bow with me for a moment? You know, conferences and camps and retreats are notorious for pressing the issue on the last night of whether or not you're saved and you know the Lord. Can I, can I just ask you to, let's press that the first night. The rest of what you're gonna hear from Brian and from Scott tomorrow will make no difference unless your life has been given over to Jesus. You believe in the gospel. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what your, what your, your uh, spiritual pedigree is or your background is, but God has brought you here tonight on purpose. Let me beg you. Let me, if I could get on my knees and plead with you, I would. Don't leave the room without looking at someone and saying, I need that mediator. I need someone to solve my problem with God. Too far to get to, too close to outrun. And Jesus is that solution. Father, please grant salvation. Please grant salvation in hearts that are searching because you've turned the light on to see the greatness of Christ. And for those of us who know and love you, how can we do anything but say thank you for being our mediator, for solving Job's problem, for solving our problem? Give us hearts to worship because of the truth that your word drives into our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.